The challenge of preaching through books of the Bible is that we come across passages that we just assume avoid sometimes, but we have to deal with. And uh, this is one of those passages. I can think of a thousand things I'd rather talk about this morning than this topic because it hits so close to home. Uh, there's not a person in this room, I would dare say, that has not, um, that, that has not been affected directly or indirectly by uh, divorce in, in their lives. And uh, that's what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. So it's an incredibly relevant passage because it affects all of us. It has affected all of us. Um, and it's timely because we live in a day and age where marriage is constantly being redefined by our culture. Okay, there's battles going on, and quite frankly, most, uh, very many Christians have no clue as to what the definition of marriage is, what it, where it began, and they have no biblical worldview. And that's one of the things we talk about as a church. We want to be a church that has a biblical worldview, and so we constantly need to be taking the way we view reality and the way that the Bible views reality and Jesus views reality and, and cross-referencing uh, them to make sure that they line up. And to the degree that our worldview is wrong, we need to discard that and go back to the biblical worldview because God created the world. He created us to know him, and he created the law to have the, the world to have certain laws, scientifically and then spiritually also. And these are not things that God just dreamed up randomly, you know, like um, God just didn't, you know, say, you know what, um, Okay, murder. Is, should I let them murder? Should I say no, not to murder? I mean, let me, let's see, what should I go? And he kind of rolled the dice and, all right, you know, I'm, we'll go ahead and say don't murder. You know, th- th- these are things that are just, th- they are birthed out of the, the holiness and the purity and the reality of who God is. He has expressed himself in ways that he's revealed his character to us. And, and that character um, commun- uh, informs us of how we are to relate to one another into God, okay? And so God didn't just randomly pick a bunch of rules. There's, there, there, all the laws and all the rules and the word of God are there to protect and to provide. They're to protect us from something and to provide something better for us. And when God tells us not to do something, it's because he's trying to protect us, okay? And when he tells us to do something, it's because he's trying to provide something better for us. And so we would be wise to listen to the things he's trying to tell us and to understand those things. And so um, that's the the heartbeat of this message. So understand, and I would just pray for uh, you to pray for me as I go through this and as we look at this passage just for freedom to be able to express and teach the Word of God this morning. And I'm thankful that you're a people that would probably run me out of town if I didn't. And so I'm thankful for that, that you love the Word and you want it taught to you. Uh, Statistics on marriage in our country that have been thrown around quite often in the last several years are pretty bad. Um, How many of you have heard somebody say 50% of all marriages end in divorce? Have you heard that? Okay, have you ever heard somebody say um, that that number is just as high in the church as it is out of the church? You heard that? Okay, well, that's actually wrong. I'm here to tell you, that's not, those aren't right. Those statistics are actually wrong. Uh, Shanti Feldham has uh, several spectacular books I highly recommend to you um, for men only and for women only, and I think for parents only is another one. But she's a researcher, she's a Christian, um, and she's studied at Harvard University, and so her methodology and research is pretty solid. Um, but she's got some great insights from the Word of God on, um, and, and then looking at statistics and looking at the way men think and the way women think that are great. So I, those are great books for uh, men trying to understand the way a, a woman's mind works. Um, and uh, that book's actually this big. I'm just kidding. 
It's really not. But um, and then uh, and then the book on how um, for women only on how a man's mind works is actually it's, like a, it's a pamphlet. It's pretty easy. Um, so that's an easy read for you ladies. But no, they're actually the same size. But um, I don't know how that's possible, but they are. So uh, the font's a lot smaller though. But no. um, But those are great books. But uh, she did a book recently that deals with the area, the, some of these statistics on marriage. And, um, and honestly, her research is uh, a godsend in that uh, we found that things aren't quite as bad as we've, it's, we've been led to believe. Uh, so here's, the, here's what they found. The, the actual statistics, according to the Census Bureau, 72%, let's have this up here on the, on the screen here, 72% of those who have, been, have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. 72% of those who have ever been married, are still married to their first spouse. And what happens is if somebody has been divorced and remarried, the likelihood of being divorced again rises. And so that kind of sometimes will change the overall statistic on a number of people been, who have been divorced. But, but in, with a little bit of research, you're going to find it hard to find statistics that back up the 50% of all marriages and, in, and, and divorce. Just not, that, that number's not out there. The, the, the deal is saying that 50% of um, marriages in the church and in divorce also uh, is a misnomer. George Barna did a study, and um, what he did in qualifying his questions, Barna's research group, is they were looking at um, people that profess to be Christian. So if you would check the box, I'm a Christian, which is over half of our population, probably 70 or 80% of our population would say that they're Christians. They don't ever, they're not involved in church, probably don't go to church necessarily, uh, might not really live those beliefs out, but they would still check that box demographically that they would say, oh yeah, well, I, I would I celebrate Christmas is really what that answers. And, um, and so based on that, that's where he came up with his, that the, the statistics inside and outside, those profess and those who, who have no religious affiliation doesn't seem to be different. But when you look at church involvement, in a recent study partnering Shawnee Feldham with the Barna Group, regular church attendance actually lowers the divorce rate anywhere from 25 to 50%. So those who are actively involved in a church, the, the likelihood of their marriages ending in divorce, it drops um, in half. At the least, it drops um, to 25% less likely, but, but as much as half, um, 50% less likely that their marriages would ever end in divorce. So the good news is it's not as bad as people have said. The bad news is it's still too bad. It's still messed up, okay? There's still a problem. And, and, um, and understand, my heartbeat here is to, uh, to not heap any condemnation on anybody. Um, we are where we are in our lives. The challenge is how do we move forward with, with um, our lives and our stories and our journey, and how do we impart to another generation a different way of living? If we were a missionary and we were to go to Papua New Guinea and there's an island of... of um, polygamous, for instance, okay? And you lead a guy to Christ, and he's got four wives. Do you tell him, you know, well, you, you really just need to, you need to get rid of three of them, okay? You really should only have one, and so you're going to have to get rid of three of them. So which, which one do you want? So do we tell him to go with the first one, the prettiest one, the best cook, the one with the most money? I mean, wh- how do you decide which wife he keeps? You know, the, the reality is, is he's made a covenant and a commitment, and though that is not God's plan, he needs to fulfill that covenant, and so the, the, the emphasis is on helping him to, impl- to use biblical principles and, and be godly and righteous in the way that he treats his wives, even though that's not the ideal. But the next generation is where we want to put the emphasis. We want to say this is wrong and not healthy and not the best for them and not the best for you. But the next generation, you guys have kids. We want you to understand that this is what the Bible teaches and this is the best way um, for you to have the best life that God wants for you is to honor his word. Does that make sense? 
So the big thing for us today is to not be afraid to talk about a subject that can be painful and difficult. And many of us in this room bear the scars, me included, of the effects of, of divorce um, directly or indirectly in our lives. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Here's what's going on. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, there's a transition going on in Jesus' ministry, which is worth noting. It's not the main point of the message, but it's, it's worth noting. What's happened is in chapter 18, he's talked about um, dealing with unforgiveness, dealing with sin and immorality in the body of Christ. How do we confront sin if there's an individual sins against you or sins against Jesus, for that matter? How do we deal with that? You go to that person and you deal with that sin, and if they don't repent, then bring another person with you to, to help them work through that. And, and if they don't repent, then, then, you, then there's a, a, a precedence for church discipline where you bring it before the church, and there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. So we talked about that several weeks ago. And then forgiveness. How often, how many times should you forgive somebody? What? basically as many times as necessary. That's the pattern. And if you can't forgive others, you're going to have a hard time finding forgiveness from Jesus. If Jesus can forgive you of all of the sins that you have done against him, then I think you could probably find it in your heart to uh, forgive others for the little petty things that they have done to you. However grievous and horrific those things might be, they pale in comparison to how we have sinned against a perfect God, okay? And so we need to be forgiving. We need to have personal holiness. We need to, to fight for that. But Jesus, though, is transitioning his ministry from Galilee, which is where it mainly has focused in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John records a little more earlier in his ministry of being in Judea and Jerusalem area. But uh, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, synopticus means together. They all have similar um, information. Uh, they all focus Jesus' ministry solely, really, on Galilee. And then now he's transitioning to um, Jerusalem and Judea area. Uh, in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, it actually says at one point that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And it's because Jesus had talked about the death, burial, and resurrection that was about to come. And now he's, he's shifting his focus to where he's going to Jerusalem. And he knows this is a one, he is a one um, way pass there. Okay, he's not coming out of there uh, without dying. He's going to die. And so he is shifting his ministry. So the rest of the Gospel of Matthew from this point on, 19 to 28, okay, is going to be uh, about Jesus' ministry, this passion um, of Christ and his teaching on the way to the cross and then death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension is the rest of the book. So that's uh, chapter 19, verses 1. And then 2, a large crowd follows him and he heals them there. And then he brings us to the context of this discussion for today. A Pharisee came up to Jesus, and he tested him by saying, Is it lawful for one's wife to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command them to uh, give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But the beginning, in the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
So he transitions from talking about to the Pharisees to now he's talking to the disciples. And one of them goes, look, if I'm hearing you right, it's probably better not to get married. And so Jesus kind of entertains that thought for a second. And he says, but he says, but there are not everyone can receive this. But to those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs who have been so by birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. This would be they were made that way to be servants in the household of a king or a dignitary or whatever. Um, and uh, there are eunuchs who have been uh, made that by themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They have chosen to um, a life of celibacy and um, f- to focus on the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And that's the end of that section. So what is going on? Well, uh, the context what is the debate going on in this day? There's two prominent rabbis, Shimei and uh, Hillel. And these two, um, Hillel, these two prominent rabbis would constantly be quoted. And so if you wanted to show authority, what you would do is you would quote another one of the rabbis up the line. And when you quoted them, people would be like, oh, well, that's, that's really, you know, Gamaliel says that? Yes, Gamaliel says that. Or Shimei says that, or Hillel says that. And when they, when they said it, that kind of gives some authority. Interestingly enough, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't quote rabbis. He said it himself. You've heard it said before. In other words, rabbis tell you, but I tell you. And so Jesus used himself being God as the source of his revelation, his authority, when he quoted things, which is why people were amazed at the things we were saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew. But here, they're still stuck in the mind, and the Pharisees are stuck in the mind of, of quoting the prominent rabbis of the day. And so the debate was between Shimei and Hillel. What, what Deuteronomy 24.1 said is this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, or some translations would say any indecency or anything indecent in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. In other words, a man can be um, <clears throat> dissatisfied with his wife is what the argument was, and all he has to do is make sure it's official, you know, kind of write a certificate of divorce so everybody knows what's happened, and he could give it to her, and he could send her away, and that's good. That's, that's, that's allowed. And so here's the debate. The debate was... Um, What's the reason? So Shimei, his, his group, his camp emphasized in that phrase in Deuteronomy, if he finds an, something indecent in her. And their big emphasis was on indecency. So it, it, for them, it was like, what well, has to be a, it has to be some kind of immorality or some kind of impurity or some infa- unfaithfulness. Then uh, Hillel's camp, they emphasized anything. So, so in that day, I mean, you could, ladies, you could burn your husband's eggs and they, he could say, you know, that's just one too many times. I mean, you've burned the biscuits, you've burned the eggs, and so away with you, you know. And he could write the certificate, boom, and he can go get another cook, right? Um, that's not God's plan, and so uh, that was a problem. And this was the debate of the day. So if you're dissatisfied, if 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 she does something, anything that that is, that you don't like, then you can you can get rid of her. You can just fill out the certificate, and you're good. Uh, or is it does it have to be an indecent thing? That's that's what they're debating. Jesus doesn't get drawn into their debate. Interesting enough, they're quoting Moses. Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy under the inspiration of God's spirit and the leadership of his spirit. But he also wrote the book of Genesis. And Genesis gives uh, the backstory to God's plan for marriage. And when Jesus is going to talk about marriage, that's where he goes. He does not deal with the effects of the fall 
and things that are permitted because of the effects of the fall and the way we have messed up life by rebelling against God and doing what we want to do. He doesn't go there. He goes back to, okay, this is, this is God's plan. So if you want to know what God thinks, this is what he thinks. Here's how he set it up. And so the context is the, this question of indecency versus anything, and uh, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the debate. Is it lawful? Jesus doesn't answer that question. He goes back and he defines marriage. So marriage defined. Marriage defined. It goes back to the beginning. How do we define marriage? What is marriage um, like? So a couple things. Who can marry? That's the first issue. Verse 4. He answers, have you not read that he who created, that's God, them from the beginning, man and woman, made them male and female? Now, I'm not sure why that is so confusing in our society that our society cannot understand the distinct differences between a man and a woman. I don't understand that, but evidently our public education system has failed the communities because people are still debating the difference is there, and I don't really understand that. But clearly, God made them male and female. You say, so are you against gay marriage? Yes, I am, because God defines marriage, and he has not given us the freedom to redefine things in creative ways because of the pulse of society. And that's what happens. That's what's going on in our culture, in our world. So that means, are you against gay people? No, I'm not. I don't believe that uh, they're born that way. I don't believe that um, biologically there's never been any scientific Mess, uh, research that is emphatically proven that there's a gay gene and all that stuff. That's just, it's just, A, science hasn't proven it. Um, and, and B, biblically, it's, there's no justification for that. So what do you do with somebody that's in that situation? We love them. We love them. We don't, we don't judge them. You know what? There's a problem when, when heterosexual people are in immoral relationships. That is sin as much as it is when homosexual people are in immoral relationships. Both of those are wrong, and both of those are people going, trying to find functional saviors that are going to satisfy their life, and they're never going to find those things apart from Christ. And so instead of us picking a pet sin and judging that, it would be better for us to judge sin consistently and call heterosexual people to repent of immorality and homosexual people to repent of immorality. But nonetheless, regardless, we cannot redefine marriage. Now, at the same time, our society has got to be considered of people that choose to live their lives in different ways. And so certainly um, protecting people um, legally from, you know, people beating them up because they don't like their um, choices, obviously we need to be, we shouldn't, you know, we need to respect people's decisions, give people freedom to do what they want. But redefining marriage is not necessary to do that. And marriage is defined biblically by God. It is the first institution that God created. Okay, before God created the church, before God created government, before God created anything else, he created the institution of marriage and sanctified it and even performed the first marriage ceremony. So, it, it, you know, he kind of knows a thing or two about marriage. And so it was foolish for us. Now, we could talk way more about that, and I could go into more detail and give you a more assertive argument to explain all the incident. We don't have time for that. So I'm going to move on. Who can marry? Well, man and a woman <coughs> can marry. Now, again, know people, respect people. They, have, they believe differently on that, whatever, that's fine, but uh, I don't think it's healthy for culture to redefine that, because, and you'll see that as we move on, because biblically, that definition is clear, and the purpose of marriage is more than just to um, fulfill your uh, desire for companionship or uh, physical pleasure or whatever, okay? We'll, we'll see that more in a minute. Who can marry? Man and woman. How do you marry? Verse 5. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, shall cleave to his wife. Leave his mom and dad, 
cleave to his wife. Leaving, what is that? Uh, that is the separation. You've heard the cutting the apron strings and the umbilical cord and all that stuff. You gotta, you, you've got to, there needs to be a separation, okay? And, and you begin a new journey. And parents do a horrible disservice to their kids when they do not facilitate that separation, when they do not help, and when they continue to be the confidant. And, and so it would be wise. What I would, Janet and I, as we counsel couples um, in premarital counseling, uh, I will, we will be quick to tell them, look, you need to draw a line in the sand and you need to discuss what it is that you will talk about and what you will not talk about with your families. But their, your relationship with your parents, they're still your parents. You need to honor your mom and dad. You need to, but, but your relationship changes and you have begun a new family and you have ended your relationship in the same way. They're not, your mom and dad are not your primary family anymore. Your husband, wife is your primary family, that you're a new unit. Okay. Respect that, love them, be connected to it. But but that, that no longer is your primary um, marriage. It's not like you're just adding people to the tree there. Okay, there's a separation. And so moms, you who have sons, need to raise your sons for the other woman. Okay, you're raising them to one day release them and entrust them into. And dads and moms, um, dads, your little baby girl, who one day you're going to have to entrust her uh, that's God's will, that God brings a godly young man along uh, to another man. Not to date your daughter. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to let some guy date your daughter, okay? To take her and he'd be his little toy and little buddy and play and have a great time. That is not biblical. It is biblical to entrust her in marriage to a man, who will protect her and provide for her and take care of her, okay? More information on that. Bodie Bauckham has a book, Who He Must Be to Marry My Daughter. You ought to read that. It's great for biblical manhood, understanding that. And number two, it's great for understanding the kind of guy um, that we need to be men and the kind of guy that you would entrust your uh, sweet baby girl princesses to. Um, some, not some knucklehead who's still living in his parents' basement who can't even balance his own checkbook and is addicted to Xbox and thinks it's justifiable to smoke weed and waste his life around. That is not God's plan for your daughters. I can assure you, um, you need not pray about it. So anyways, um, a little, little, anyways, but nonetheless, when they get married, let them leave, let them leave and then cleave. Uh, A lot of times in pre-mill counseling, when I talk about this, I'll take two pieces of construction paper, blue and a pink, and I'll put some Elmer's glue and stick them together and say, this is what it means to leave and cleave. And then I'll set it aside and we'll continue the conversation. And after a couple minutes, I'll, we'll talk about, you know, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder or separate. And when you try to peel those together after a couple moments, they will never come back. They'll never come apart the way that they went together. They're inseparable. They, 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 there's going to be damage if you try to separate them. And that's the word. When he talks about cleaving, he talks about plying together, becoming two, becoming one, and they're stuck together. And so that's where many of us in this room, we have scars because we didn't heed that advice, and, and it has been, our lives have been separate or somebody close to us, and we are dealing with the effects of that, and there, we didn't come apart the way that we went together. It, we're different. We're, we're, there's, there's been some um, scars there. Leaving and cleaving. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So implications of marriage. Here's, here's what it is. No longer two. The two become one flesh. The two separate, become one flesh, no longer two, now one, physically one, emotionally one, financially one. 
spiritually one, uniquely intertwined. And let me take a moment and talk about that. Um, You are no longer, when you leave, you cleave, and the two become one flesh, you are no longer independent. You're no longer independent. Okay, so, you know, guys, you can't, when you're married, you don't just, you know, continue to have the same relationship with other girls as you do with your wife. You don't have girlfriends anymore. And girls, you don't have boyfriends. And I don't mean boyfriends as in dating, but I mean like friends that are boys. Right? It does it, so I can never talk to somebody. That, yeah, you can have friends, but you have friends together. It is unwise to continue to have friendships the same way, and your relationships change, okay? And so your interaction, men with other women, should not look the same. You don't talk about the same level of things, and your communication shouldn't have the same level of intimacy as it does with your wife. You don't talk about your conflict in your marriage with somebody of the opposite sex. You don't do that, okay? And so, uh, you, you if ladies, you got problems with your husband, go talk to another woman. Or if, I mean, if there's a situation, again, we go back in Matthew chapter 18, where there's something needs to be confronted and sin. It's one thing to come to um, pastors. But then again, I'm not going to meet you for lunch. I'll go ahead and tell you that right now. Okay, I'm not going to pick you up and drive you to, uh, you know, Tupelo Honey to talk about your marriage. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. A, the appearance, and B, I'm not going to do that to, to my marriage, okay? So, you know, I'll, I'll meet with you, but most likely either A, Janet will be there. Well, clearly Janet will know about the conversation. Or B, um, she'll be there with me in the conversation. Or C, we'll be meeting in a place where there are plenty of other people present, um, probably the summit where there's uh, rooms with windows and people all around, and it's a community place. There's enough privacy to have the conversation and talk about the situation. But reoccurring, I'm not going to meet you every Friday at 3 o'clock for us to have coffee and talk about your marriage problems. It's not going to happen. One time we talk about it, we can diagnose, we can work. But uh, pretty quickly, Janet's going to know about it, and and we're we're pulling her into the conversation. And quite frankly, you'd you'd rather talk to her anyways. (laughs) I understand that. She's a lot better than I am. But, um, but anyways, I, why am I like that? Is it because I don't, you know, I'm a mean and I'm grumpy? and I'm, No, I'm just trying to protect my marriage. I'm trying to protect your marriage. I'm trying to honor God, have the appearance of, of holiness, and, and to not open ourselves up into um, dangerous situations, okay? There's too many pastors who have destroyed their marriages because of doing dumb things like that. I'm not doing that. And so the, what are we talking about here? Well, you're no longer independent. You have to make decisions considerate of, your spouse, no longer independent. But secondly, you're, no, you're not independent. You, you aren't codependent. Have you met those couples that their identity is so intertwined with somebody that they cannot breathe apart from the other person being there? You understand what I'm talking about? They're so codependent that their identity has gotten lost in the other person. You know what I'm talking about? Where they get married and they're just like, you know, they, 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 their life is completely a, a train wreck apart from the other person being there, and they have just so absorbed, their identity has shifted from Jesus to their spouse or their boyfriend, their girlfriend, or whatever. That's codependency. That is danger. Okay, that's not healthy. Independency in marriage is not healthy. Codependency in marriage is not healthy. Interdependency is God's plan. Interly dependent upon God, upon Jesus. He's the center, but then and within each other. Symbiotic relationships. You guys complement one another. The, it's not that you're identical. Um, you are vastly different. And so you complement one another. You help one another. You uh, minister to one another by your unique differences. And you're interdependent, not codependent. I will tell you this. God forbid um, that, God, uh, that, that he would take Janet or I from one another prematurely by death. 
Um, we, we, you know, expect to break the tape together at like 95 years old unless Jesus comes back earlier. Um, and, uh, but whatever. Whatever happens, happens. But I would tell you this. If, if God is to bring me home prematurely, I can assure you Janet's going to continue to walk with Christ. It, it will be an adjustment. It will be difficult for either of us to lose the other one. But, but our identity is in Christ, and we know that he would be sufficient. His grace would be sufficient. He would pull us through. Okay, he would provide. He would take care of us. He will. Do we want to go down there? No, absolutely not. But we would know he's sufficient. And I have full confidence in Janet's walk with the Lord that Jesus is her first and foremost passion. Not me. I wouldn't have married her if I was because I'm going to fail her. Okay, I, I need Jesus to be the center of her universe. And as long as Jesus is center of her universe and my universe, then there's interdependency in one another, not codependency. Does that make sense? And so what he means by being joined together is interdependency. No longer two, now one, and then joined together. Let me finish that thought. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German fellow um, who died uh, during the Holocaust um, as a Christian leader, and um, he died in prison. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, performing a wedding in prison, and he wrote um, some what's known as the letters and papers from prison. There's actually, these have been published. And in that, dealing with marriage, he, he said this, as you gave the ring to one another and have now received it a second time from the hand of the pastor. So marriage ceremony, you both come in with a ring, okay? May I have the rings? And we go over and we awkwardly grab the ring from them and we go in the grim look trying to find it and you get the rings. And so they've received the rings. They brought the rings to the table and they've received them. The pastor has them now, okay? Uh, the pastor, so um, as you receive them a second time, they're given back a second time with a completely different meaning now. They're not just two random rings. Now they've been blessed by God. There's a, there's a picture that is, goes forth with that ring now. So love comes from you, but marriage comes from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. Listen to this. It is not your love that sustains the marriage. Can I say that a thousand times? It is not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. What's he talking about? In marriage, there is a covenant commitment made before God. In fact, Janet and I, in our, in our wedding ceremony, we actually, she had the great idea. She'd seen somebody else do this and pulled together in the 11th hour this, our, a covenant that we actually signed as part of our ceremony. Now, the covenant ultimately is a verbal thing between us and God, but we wanted a symbolic example of that. So we literally have a covenant. The problem is I didn't get to read my side before I signed it because it was kind of a last minute thing. So we were up there in the middle of the ceremony and <coughs> Janet signs her side. And I was like, I didn't get to read this. And she was like, you just signed it. My side's longer anyways. So just write, you know, so I'm like, all right. So I sign it. And then our wedding party signed it as witnesses. And we actually have that in our, in our, um, in our bedroom as a reminder of the covenant that God has, that we have made with God together, symbolic of that covenant. And so it's the covenant and the commitment of marriage that sustains love, not love that sustains the covenant commitment. Does that make sense? So God has joined this together, and he goes on to say, let no man separate. And this does not mean literally a biological man. It means that here's what God is saying. God is the one who put this together. No mere human should touch it. God is the one who put this together. No mere, mere human should touch it. Man, stay away from it. God is the one who's sanctified, who has sealed, who has brought these two and made them one. And what God has joined together, let no man 
separate. Continuing on, verse 7, he says, They said to him, Why then did you, then Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, to send her away? So they're going back to Deuteronomy. And he says to them, Because of the hardness of their hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your, your wives. But it was not like this from the beginning. So let me give you some lessons from the fall, some observations of the law in Jesus' kingdom. Okay? The law tells us not to murder. Okay? But the kingdom tells us to... Uh, that if we have anger towards somebody, we've committed murder. And then it goes beyond that to say we should even love our enemies. You with me? The law says that we are to not commit adultery. But then Jesus comes along and he says, if you have lust in, in your heart towards a woman, then you have committed adultery. So, so Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount something that is not a watered-down version of the law. Quite frankly, it's the opposite. It is a ramped-up version. He's saying, no, no, what, the superficial stuff that you're trying to obey, no, no, no. The kingdom is about my grace and me operating with my spirit in you, my righteousness in you, my power in you to do far beyond what the world would ever expect you to do what the law would require you to do. I'm going to call you and empower you and enable you to do far beyond that. But because of the hardness of the hearts and because of the fall of man, we look in the book and it says that God uh, has permitted a man to divorce his wife um, or vice versa. And there are certain circumstances that are given. Um, immorality is one of them. If there's an unbelieving spouse that wants to be away, wants to wants to divorce the believing wife or the believing husband, unbelieving wife, um, and they want out, they're free to let them go. Then we get into issues of are they free to remarry and get all that. And I'm not even going to go down that road today because we don't have time for that argument. I will commend to you this book by John Piper called uh, This Momentary Mess, uh, Marriage, and I'm going to um, quote from it here in a moment. But this is probably the best, most practical, theologically um, biblically informed view of marriage that I have seen in my long existence. And so uh, I would highly commend this. It's a great book. If you want to grow in these things, for every marriage, you should be forced to read this in uh, premarital before you get into it so you realize the commitment that you're making. But interestingly enough, the Bible permitted and regulated divorce, but that does not mean that it's God's ideal or it's God's best. The Bible also permitted and reg- regulated other things. It permitted polygamy, but it never endorsed polygamy. That was never a good thing. Solomon was highly guilty of that, as Mike uh, Miller talked about last week, but it never did the Bible commend that and say, well, this is the way you should live. Um, it, it permitted certain kinds of, of um, slavery, but it never justifies slavery. It never endorses it and says that's the ideal. Absolutely not. And so, likewise, uh, the Bible permits divorce, but never is it the ideal and is the plan, because it violates the primary reason for marriage. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples say, this is such, if this is such the case, it's better not to get married. And, uh, which raises the last question, who, who can receive this? Who can receive this? The purpose of marriage is, is this. If, purpose of marriage, three things. Purpose of marriage, threefold. Companionship certainly is one of those. Companionship. Yeah, to, to meet somebody, fall in love, commit yourself to each other, you are a married companionship. That's fine. By the way, the falling in love thing is a Greco-Roman. That's a new thing. Well, not new, but it's been around for a little while. But that wasn't necessarily the purpose of marriage. It used to be, uh, and in most cultures around the world today, you're given your spouse by your parents. They know what's best for you. They entrust you to somebody else who they have selected. And you can fall in love with, uh, with the person that your parents appoint to you as easy as you 
can fall in love with somebody um, based upon adrenaline rushes and things that are chemical that will come and go and uh, is not the best foundation for a healthy marriage. So um, I would encourage you to go beyond that. But companionship is a factor and is one of the reasons for marriage. Secondly, be fruitful and multiply. Procreation obviously is a purpose for marriage, to have kids. But do you know that the primary purpose for marriage is not is neither of these, and it is solely God's glory. The primary reason for marriage is for God's glory. This clearly is the message of Ephesians chapter 5. One of the most clear teachings on marriage in the, in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 5, which says, after talking about there being mutual submission in the church to one another, it goes on to say, wives to your husbands, as, Christ, as, as the church submits to Christ, uh, and then husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, um, to sanctify her, to make her holy. Anybody who wants to love himself ought to love his wife. Just incredible instructions on, uh, on marriage and how the marriage relationship goes. But then he gets down a little further in the passage, and here's what he says. It's really interesting. Chapter 5, verse 32, he says, And the mystery, this mystery is profound. And if you put a period there, we would all go, yeah, of course, marriage. Yeah, it's a crazy mystery. I mean, love and, and just with the whole family thing. I mean, it's an interesting mystery, but that's not what he was talking about puts a comma there, and he says, and I'm saying this refers to Christ and the church. What I'm talking to you about is not marriage. Do you know that in heaven there is no giving and receiving of marriage? That your marriage in heaven will be over, it'll be done, it'll be gone. Marriage is a picture. It is a shadow of which the relationship of Christ and his church, the bride, Christ, the groom, his church, the bride, is the picture. That's the, the, the reality. Marriage on earth is a picture of what our relationship with Christ in heaven is the reality. Uh, John Piper put it this way. He said, um, he said all pleasures and, and joys of earth in heaven are going to be raised to an infinitely higher key. Okay, that what, what's going to happen is things that we say, you know, well, this is, I mean, I can't imagine life. I define myself so much by this, my, my marriage, my relationship, my whatever. I mean, I can't think of life outside of my family. And what God is saying, no, no, this is, it's awesome. And I bless this and I created you to enjoy this. But understand, heaven's going to be so much better than that. And the relationship you're going to have with Christ in heaven is going to, um, is going to be the reality of which marriage is just a little shadow of, just a shadow not the substance. It's a parable of which points to the reality. The real story is Christ and the church. And that is what Paul is getting to. Marriage is a shadow. Christ is the church is the substance. Piper put it this way. The ultimate meaning of marriage is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. To live this truth and to show this truth is what it means most deeply to be married. This is the ultimate reason why marriage exists. There are other reasons, but this is the main one. Therefore, if Christ, this is critical, if Christ ever abandons and discards his church, then a man may divorce his wife. And if the blood-bought church under the new covenant ever ceases to be the bride of Christ, then a wife may legitimately divorce her husband. But as long as Christ keeps his covenant with the church, and as long as the church, by the omnipotent grace of God, remains the chosen people of Christ, then the very meaning of marriage will include what God has joined together. Only God can separate. Staying married for the long haul is not about staying in love. It's about keeping a covenant. It is about a covenant-keeping love. This is my words. This is not Piper here which is what Bonhoeffer refers to when he says it's not love, 
that sustains marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. So should you and I mistakenly think, um, should we mistakenly think that this sounds less romantic? We're going, you know, you're kind of taking the whole fun out of marriage. I mean, I think you fall in love with somebody, you bring flowers, and you propose, you get married, and big picture, big ceremony, it's great. We have a white picket fence, and life's perfect, and whatever. The reality is, that is only going to last you so long. But marriage is like, um, in fact, Noel Piper in the, in the preface of his book gives this image, I think it's beautiful. It's like the, a pendulum that swings sometimes from times of just jubilation where marriage is just great. It's the sweetest thing in the world. It's just awesome. Marriage is just wonderful. And then sometimes it swings to where there could be some times that are just dark and difficult and hard. And, and your marriage doesn't stay on one side or the other. It's going to ebb and flow as life ebbs and flows. But all the while, the pendulum, the focus of the pendulum is not the bottom, but where it's connected, and that's the top. God is what sustains. God is what holds it all together. And so, instead of us going, you know, wow, this doesn't really sound that fun. In, in a fallen, broken world that loves Deuteronomy 24 kind of love, a, a love of, you know, if, if you don't really meet my needs, then I want to go on for somebody else. In a, in a world that loves that, a love that is romantically, passionately committed until, until you burn the eggs or there, there's no longer any fire in the oven or until things just aren't what I thought, you know, that, that's the world's love. Christ's love, and he, he loves us with a love uh, that, that is like the book of Hosea, where Hosea marries Gomer, the wife of unfaithfulness, and she leaves him and goes off into prostitution and becomes a slave where he has to purchase her back after she has violated their covenant and their commitment. And he relentlessly loves her, buys her back, restores her to a right relationship. That is the love of which Christ loves you. That is the relentless love on which the covenant-keeping God loves you with a covenant-keeping love. That's the Old Testament word. We have loving kindness. is covenant-keeping love. That's the way God relentlessly loves you. That is the kind of love that should be pictured in marriage, a love that says, I am with you until the ends of the earth. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. When we experience that love, we're free to suddenly love in an unconditional way. One last thought here. How do we respond to this? It is my desire to not heap condemnation and guilt. And at the same time, God's word is convicting and it's challenging to us. And so how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we move forward? A couple thoughts and I'm done. One way is to come alongside divorced persons and stand by them. This is Piper's words. them find a way to enjoy the forgiveness and the strength for new obedience that Christ obtained when he died and he rose again. The other way is to respond lovingly and caringly is to articulate a hatred of divorce and why it is against the will of God and do all we can to biblically keep it from happening. Compromise on sacredness, on the sacredness of this lifelong permanence of marriage Positions that weaken the solidity of covenant union may feel loving in the short run, but wreak havoc for thousands over the decades. Have wreaked havoc for thousands over the decades. These high standards may feel tough now, but it produces 10,000 blessings on future generations. The challenge for us is to go, okay, we are where we are. 
But as we move forward, how do we recapture a view of marriage that's biblical? And how do we fight for marriage in our congregation? How do we fight to keep marriages together? We do all that we can so that, so that if a marriage dissolves, we can say, you know what? We did everything we could to try to save that marriage, to try to reconcile that couple, to try to do whatever we could. We love them. We prayed for them. We hurt with them. We weep with them. We did whatever we could. We tried to do whatever we fought for that. that that's what I think God's calling us to be like as a church. To be that kind of church that's going to fight, that's going to run into the fire with one another and fight. And I hope you would fight for my marriage like I want to fight for your marriage. That we would be that kind of people. Conclusion. Here's the glorious reality about these truths. And I want to give you some great hope today. It's the good news about this. If you are here and you're going, you know what, I've, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You're talking about divorce, remarriage, and these things. I've made a ton of other mistakes that you haven't even listed. And I am condemned in that i've made these i'm messed up or you say you know i've been divorced one two three four five times whatever uh, remarried multiple times i mean i've so messed up my life i've so this i've so that i want you to know something the image that that marriage is supposed to symbolize is your way out that's your hope the fact that christ has kept his covenant I, i got news for you no matter how much you feel like you've messed up your life Christ will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will go after you and I, the gomers, the wives of unfaithfulness, us, the church, who runs away from our covenant commitment. He will go after us again and again and again and again. And what he has begun, he will finish. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He loves you with a relentless love. And so you do not stand condemned. If there's sin God has convicted you to have, repent of that. Trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And then live the life that God has created you to live, empowered by his spirit. That's the message.